Merry Christmas and welcome to Christmas Eve at Orchard Hill. It's great to be together. I want to say a special welcome to those of you participating in the chapel and the lobby as well. Don't you wish we could find some people who could sing around here? Wouldn't that just uh, make everything a little better? You know, there are, um, yeah, we can give them a round of applause. You guys nailed it. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of ways that we mark Christmas, a lot of ways that we kind of frame our Christmas celebration. Sometimes it's the decor that we set out in our homes. Sometimes it's the food that we eat. Sometimes it's some traditions that we establish, maybe traditions like coming to a service or this service. And then there are traditions that we have that are around gift giving. And when we exchange gifts, probably most of us here will at some point do that either tonight, tomorrow, or we've already done it in the last week or will in the week ahead with people that are close to us. And that tradition is, is one that, that we always, when we come to that moment, you never entirely know what you're going to receive. You, you know what you're going to give, but you don't always know what you're going to receive. And uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I were uh, exchanging our gifts, and when I opened my gift, this is what I had. <laughs> That's a book. If you can't see it, it's eat this, not that, is what she gave me. Now, the next year, this is what was here. And this is, I'm not making this up. Somebody asked me if I, like, <laughs> like embezzled this story. No, this is hair-thickening shampoo was the next year. I'm a little concerned about what I should expect this coming year, like tomorrow when the gifts happen. Actually, I asked her if I could share these, these gifts, and she said, only if you tell a few of the gifts you got me. And then she told me the gifts I should tell you. Uh, one year, evidently, the exercise clothes were not a big hit. <laughs> now, I like to think that it was after she gave me the book, Eat This, Not That, but I'm not sure. The timeline's a little fuzzy. And then uh, there was a year I got her a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> evidently, that's not a good gift either. <laughs> so we have that tradition. We also have some, some things that mark Christmas with our music. Sometimes it's songs like we've had here tonight. Sometimes it's maybe songs that we put on a playlist or we hear on the radio that are just kind of fun. For example, there's a song that was big a few years ago that was, uh, and still gets a lot of plays, been done by several artists, and it's All I Want for Christmas is You. Maybe you've heard the song, maybe you remember the song. But it has a, a precursor to it, a song that probably you also know, All I Want for Christmas is my two front teeth. That's right, and what we know is that the two front teeth request, it seems like a pretty small request. Unless, of course, you don't have two front teeth, in which case it's a big request. But to say, all I want for Christmas is you, is a, is a big request, because you're saying, what I need, what I really want, is somebody who will be romantic in my life, who will be a partner in some way with me. And here's what's probably true of most of us in this room, whether it's something small or something big. We have something that we say, if I could have this, if this would work, if this would change, this would make my life good. This would make my Christmas good. And not only do we kind of have that longing, that hope, but for many of us, if we have those things, then we say God is good. And if we don't have those things, we start asking the question, well, where is God then? Where's God in my life? And into this comes this narrative of Christmas that God took on human form, came to earth as Jesus Christ, 
was born in a stable, lived a sinless life, went to a cross to die for the sins of all humanity, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day return to set everything right in this world. And many of us hear that and we say, yeah, but what I really want for Christmas is my two front teeth. I want somebody. I want something that I think will will give me satisfaction along the way. Well, the gospel writers explain the significance of Jesus' life. They, They tell of his life, but they also explain the significance of it. The gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of Jesus' life. And in John, we hear this in John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. It says, in him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John says, here's what Jesus brings. Here's what that narrative is all about. Jesus brings life. But I would imagine even in saying that, that there are many of us who are gathered here who say, that's nice, I already have a life, and the life that I want needs something. What I really want, what I really need is this, and and we fill in a blank with something that we say, if I could have this, then my life would be good, But, but the life that God offers, I don't know that I need that right now. I need something else. I don't know if you've ever received a gift that was better than you thought. In other words, you got a gift and, and you thought, oh, that's okay, but, but it ended up being way better than you thought. I had an experience about a year and a half ago where I was given a gift. My son and I, uh, one of my sons and I, we went on a bike ride from downtown Pittsburgh at the point to Washington, D.C. There's a trail that connects all of that. Here's a picture of us. And what's significant about this picture is these saddlebags. That's all the gear we had with us for five and a half days, 330 miles of bike riding. And so what we had is stuff to fix our bikes if something went wrong. We had clothes, we had rain gear, we had some some rations, some things like that. And one of my friends came to me a little bit before this, and and he gave me some some cream, some paste. For for our purposes, we'll call it saddle paste. (laughs) And I had gone on some long rides before, and I was like, I don't think I need this. And space was at a premium, so I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm even going to take this. But but when it came time to pack my bag, I squeezed it in a little bit and said, you know what, I don't want to offend my friend, so I put it in the bag. And at the end of the first day, I was feeling pretty good, but I thought maybe I should use a little bit of this just so I can tell them I used it. At the end of the second day, it was really important. (laughs) By the third day, it was gold. This was better than I thought. This was something that I was kind of like, I don't need that. But it ended up being critical. And here's what life is. When you first hear it, you may say, oh, that's, that, that's like, uh, what I need is this. But yet this life that Jesus brings is better than maybe you even think. And in order for us to get this, we have to understand that John uses the word life in two different ways. When he uses the word life, sometimes it's referring to future life. You have probably thought this or heard this because John 3.16, John, same author, gives this, this verse that's well known, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And that's speaking of a future life. But, but Jesus says something, and it's recorded in John 11.25. Again, John using the, this word, this image, And it says this, this is Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And so what Jesus 
speaks of here is future life, saying that in essence, that, that you can die, this life can end, and there's still life beyond it. But this isn't just a, a promise of a continuation of life. This is speaking of a quality of life. And the reason I say that is because the biblical writers, John specifically, when they talk about the future life that we have in Jesus Christ, what they speak of is a life without pain, a life without tears, a life without the brokenness of the world, and the possibility of being reunited with people who have died before us who are also in Christ. In other words, this is an amazing statement about what can be, because you and I live in a world where we constantly have something that we say, that's broken, that's not the way it should be. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, who's an author of another generation. Here's what he said. He said, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings, which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some great subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what we would ordinarily call unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There is something that we have grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may have been very, a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. And then he says this at another point. Creatures are not born with desires for, uh, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. I'll paraphrase him in this next sentence. He says, men feel a desire for intimacy? Well, there's such a thing as intimacy. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. You see, the longings that you feel even in the best moments of your life, even in the, in the times when everything is as you want it to be, those longings are pointing to this future life, to this idea that there will come a time when that will not be a temporary state of things, but it will be the reality, the life that God says is for those who believe in Jesus. But John uses the word life in another way. He doesn't just speak about future life, because if there was just future life, then all we'd have to do is endure this world, this present world. But he also speaks about life in the present tense, speaks about current life. And when he does this, he does it in a way that says that we have life now. This is John chapter 5, verse 24. It says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, and believes in him who sent me, now listen to the tense of the verb, has, not will have, but has eternal life, and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So Jesus, as recorded by John, says, says you have future life, but you also have this life now. 
if you believe in Jesus. Now, some have heard this, and what they've taken this to mean is to say, well, if I have everything that God wants me to have now, then everything should go well in my life. They'll say things like, if I'm a child of the king, if I'm a child of God, then I should be able to get everything in this world to line up the way that I want. But even a casual reading of the Bible tells us that this isn't so. Just look at a few of the characters. There was Cain who tried to bring a sacrifice to God and it wasn't pleasing to God and it led to strife with his brother. There was Abram and Sarah who left their country and traveled across a continent to follow the call of God. And yet for decades, they dealt with infertility. There's Joseph who was... A young man that we know from the way the text reads was full of integrity, but at the same time, his brothers were jealous of him, and so they sold him into slavery. And after he rose through the the ranks kind of of that, that house and in the country to be over all of the agriculture, he had a reunion with his brothers that was at least somewhat shallow, and he never made it back home. And then there's Job where the book of Job goes out of its way to say in chapter 1 that Job was righteous and upright, and then Job's adult children died. Job lost all of his resources. Job's health deteriorated all in a very short season of time. And the point of this is to say that, that this promise of life here and now doesn't mean that everything goes smoothly for the people who have it, In fact, if we start to believe that way, what will happen is whenever we run into something that's hard, we'll start to blame God and say, where is God? Where is God in this? Or we'll blame ourselves and say, I didn't believe enough. I wasn't faithful enough. Or we'll say this whole world is rigged. But this promise of life is God's way of saying, even when things are hard, even when you suffer, I'm with you in it and I'll be enough. You see, when we understand and believe that this gift of life is given to us, what it means is we can enjoy the things that this world has to offer without loading so much onto them that we demand from them what they were never intended to give us. We can enjoy a beautiful dinner with our family, a time with friends, whatever it is, and say this is just a taste of what will one day always be. And... When we walk through a hard time, we don't have to be devastated. We can endure it because we can say, I wasn't just created for this world. And so we get life in the future and life now. Now, many of us, our issue when we hear this life is to say, I don't know if I want that. What I really want is this. But some of us hear this idea of a gift from God of life. And our reaction is more to say, well, what can I do? What can I bring to the event? And what I mean by that is if you've ever been invited somewhere and you say, what can I bring? Well, what are you doing? You're saying, I need to contribute to this. And what happens for some of us when we hear about this gift of God is we say, how can I contribute in some way to what God is giving me? There's an episode of the Big Bang Theory that teaches a little bit of theology And here's what happens. Penny and Sheldon are friends and they're approaching Christmas and Penny says to Sheldon, I got you a gift. And Sheldon says to her, he didn't get me a gift, you got me an obligation. 
because now I have to get you a gift. And in fact, at one point when he's talking about this, he's bemoaning the idea of gift exchanges, and he says that a gift has to be of commensurate value and representing the same level of perceived friendship. So what he does is he says, okay, whatever penny gets me, I've got to match it just right. You know how this works, right? If you have some people in your work environment who, who give you something, you're like, ah, I got to find something to give to them that, that's the same basic value of perceived friendship. That's what happened here. So what Sheldon does is he goes out to the store and he grabs three different gift baskets, one big, one middle size, one small, different values. And his plan is to keep them in the back until he receives the gift from Penny. He'll excuse himself, go in the back and decide which of the gift baskets most closely proximicates to, to what she gave him. And then he says, I'll bring it to her. Some of you are thinking that's how I should approach gift giving with my in-laws later. <laughs> well, she comes, she brings her gift. He opens it. It's a napkin. At first, he's not very moved, and then he realizes that it's signed by one of his heroes, Leonard Nimoy. So now he's really moved a little bit, and then he realizes that it's not just a signed napkin. Leonard Nimoy actually used the napkin. And he begins to tear up because he says, not only do I have his autograph, I have his DNA. So he goes in the back room and he comes back and he brings all three baskets and he's carrying them and he says, I know, I know, it's not enough, it's not enough. You see, what some of us do is instead of saying, I don't need the life that God offers, what we do is we say, if God's going to give me anything, I have to earn it. I have to reciprocate. I have to give back to God. And what happens when we do that is we're crushed under the weight of trying to live up to the expectations that we put on our relationship with God. But here's what the Bible says in Romans 8, chapter 1. It says, There is now for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. You see, this is the life that God is talking about. Because when you and I understand that there's, that, that there's no condemnation, that Jesus says, if you believe in the one who sent me, you have eternal life, you won't be judged, what he's saying is you don't have to keep trying to perform. I heard somebody trying to explain this. And the person talked about his daughter. He said his daughter was taking a class and she was struggling with the class. And as she was struggling with the class, she decided she was going to drop it. And so she went in to talk to the professor and the professor said, listen, if you don't drop the class, I'll guarantee that I'll give you an A at the end of the class. Just come to the class, participate, do the work, take the exams, but however you score, I'll give you an A. She didn't have to think about it long. She said, this sounds like a good deal. I'll do that. And so she took the class, and what she found, when the pressure of evaluation was taken off, when the pressure of judgment was taken off, all of a sudden she was able to enter in and to thrive. See, this is what Jesus gives in life. This is what it means when we say there's no condemnation, no judgment, that you and I don't earn our way with God. We are given credit for what Jesus Christ has done. And here's why this is so great. This is why this is a better gift than you and I even often understand or appreciate. We live in a world that is all about performance. You have to perform at work. You have to perform in the gym, try to keep looking good. You have to perform in the places that you have friends, even in your family with brothers, sisters, 
Moms and dads, kids, you have to perform. And some of us might say, well, I don't have to perform with my spouse. Really? Of course you still perform with your spouse. There's a performance culture that's part of our entire world. And here's what makes the the offer of life from Jesus Christ so great. And that is it's the one place that you and I don't have to perform. It's the one place where we can come and say, Jesus has done for me. I don't need to continue to perform. This is what makes it such a great gift. But what some of us do is we try to reciprocate, to give back. And we're missing what the Christmas narrative, what the cross is all about. Henry Nouwen, who's another author from a previous generation, put it like this. He said, somehow, I realized that songs, music, good feelings, beautiful liturgies, nice presents... Big dinners and many sweet words do not make Christmas. Christmas is saying yes to something beyond all emotions and feelings. Christmas is saying yes to a hope based on God's initiative, which has nothing to do with what I think or feel. Christmas is believing that the salvation of the world is God's work and not mine. Things will never look just right or feel just right. If they did, someone would be lying. But it is into this broken world that a child is born who is called Son of the Most High, Prince of Peace, Savior. So the question is, will you and I just mark our Christmases with songs and gifts and food and decor? Or will we say yes to something bigger? Yes to what Jesus offers in this life that he offers. In John 1, verses 4 and 5, where we started, it says that Jesus brings life, but it also says that he's the light that shines in the darkness, that he brings light, that he shows the way. So saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to the light in our dark world. It's saying that I am going to respond to what Jesus has done in Christmas. Now, for some of us, saying yes might be simply committing to investigating this. Maybe you, as you're here today, can see yourself as one who says, what I really want, what I really need is this, and you keep running into frustration. Maybe today, you just want to say, I'm going to say yes to at least considering this life that Jesus offers as being a better gift than I could understand or think right now. At Orchard Hill, we're beginning a new series in January called One Thing, all three of our campuses. This might be a great way just to say for a month, I'm going to come to a gathering like this and consider what the claims of Jesus might mean in my life. Or maybe today as we've talked, your yes could be bigger than that. For some of us, maybe as we're here, we've realize that our way of perceiving God or Jesus has always been to say, God has a standard and my job is to perform and to meet the standard and and Jesus is the one urging me on. But today you realize that it's a gift and that to be in Christ means that you are no longer under condemnation, that you won't be judged. Or maybe... You've believed in Jesus for a long time. 
Maybe your yes is to say yes because the reality for you is you started to believe that there's something else that would really satisfy you. Even though you, you give, give doctrinal assent to the idea of Jesus, your functional level of belief is saying, what I really want this year, what I really need is this. And you've stopped savoring and enjoying and understanding and appreciating the life that Jesus gives. Maybe for you, it's just to say yes to that again. Or maybe, maybe you're the person who has been trying to trade with God. Maybe right now is just your time to say yes to the gift once again and say, God, I thank you for what you've given me. But saying yes means that you enter into this life and it doesn't mean that you'll have bells go off and everything will be just right, but it means that you're in possession of a great gift which can change the whole trajectory of your experience, because now you have life that's future and life that's present. Father, we ask very simply today that you would help all of us to say yes. God, for some of us, that, that might mean just right now, in this moment, saying that we understand our, our need for a Savior, we understand our sin, and that we want Jesus to be our Savior. For others of us, it means something else, but help us to say yes to you, not just today, but throughout all the days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.